everyone, welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast for the Society of Graduate Students here at Western. I'm your host, Yusuf. And I'm your co-host, Liam Clifford. And today we're here with Gavin Tolometti, who's doing his PhD in Earth Sciences. Uh, welcome, Gavin, to our show. Ah, great to be back once again. <laughs> you said it was the third time round. Yeah, this is number three. Great. So third time. Awesome. Great. So we're we're hoping to build on it. So Gavin, I don't know if you want to introduce yourself for the third time or if you want to get straight into it. Um, but just tell us a little bit more about yourself to introduce you to the audience again. Yeah, no problem. So for I guess it's be for anyone who's new, uh I'm actually a gradcast member for the pat approaching about two and a half years now. I have in planetary and earth science at Western doing my PhD. And my main focus is studying lava flows and impact melt on Earth to try and understand them on the moon in particular and branching into Martian lava flows a little bit, a little bit now, which is a new part of my research. And uh, most of it does involve looking at remote sensing data sets, which what I mean by that is like imagery collected by satellites and planes on Earth and planetary ones that are currently orbiting the moon and Mars because it's one of the best ways to get a large overview of the surface of different planetary bodies. And it's the best way for us to try and understand features that we see on the surface of the moon and Mars by studying similar ones that we can actually go to physically on earth to try It's like a comparative study, trying to understand what we see on earth to see, to try and understand what we can view via set imagery of the moon and Mars, but what we can't physically touch. So I guess, I guess you collect a lot of data and you go to, you explore yourself to different sites, volcanic sites, perhaps on um, some locations that you might want to share with us. Yeah, definitely. So the one, the first site I visited was, and I actually talk about this a lot in the second time I was on. Uh, is that um, Craters of the Moon National Monument and Preserve, which is the one of the largest lava fields in the United States, the, the mainland not including uh, air, uh, some of the other areas like uh, Hawaii. But it's a very unique lava field because there's so many different types of lava flows, not just the typical ones you probably see on the news when Hawaiian volcanoes erupt, where you see uh, this very smooth, glassy flow known as a pahoehoe, or this very rough, razor-sharp, jagged lava known as an AA. But this lava field hosts numerous different types, some built of giant plates, some have slabs that have been broken into pieces, some look like rubble, similar to what you see at construction sites, like all the material that's been dumped that looks like small and big pieces of rock. So we started, I started looking at that site because it has unique surface properties or in particular, like the roughness of these lava flows, they show some similarities to lava flows on the moon. And what I wanted to do was to use remote sensing data, which is available on Earth and also available on the moon, to try and see if we can understand about the lava's properties, but only using the remote sensing data. But I did have to go travel in the field to ground truth this type of remote sensing data because just because we can look at this imagery, we still need to be able to ensure that we understand exactly what we're seeing. So that's the one advantage of, use, of going to these sites on Earth, since we can look at what this remote sensing data sets are telling us just by sitting in a lab. 
but then we can go in the field and we can either confirm or reject hypotheses we have based on only that data, which is ha very handy because if you don't do that before looking at planetary data sets, your whole ideology of what you might be looking at could be completely different. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very interesting how you how you brought up the Hawaiian example, because I think to the unaided eye, a lot of people would say that lava has almost this mythological presence, you know, that it's it's been embodied in cultures for thousands of years. And, you know, has that, you know, it's it, it as a sort of natural tour de force, as you will. So why do you find an attraction to lava? What, what importance do you see in studying its properties, especially when it breaches the surface in a lava flow? I think for me, well, in planetary science, lava flows are the, one of the best ways to try and understand what processes might be happening within the center, not necessarily the core, but like beneath the surface of a planetary body. It can tell us a lot about volcanic eruption styles, which can then tell us about the magmatic processes that are currently happening in the shallow region of a planetary body. And also they, they become very useful because one, they do, cause, they do pose as a hazard for uh, astronauts and robotic missions. You need to be able to understand what you're exactly you're landing on. And lava flows are notorious for being very either sharp, razor sharp and glassy, or they could have very thin shells that actually have giant voids beneath them. So if you were to land on it, you could fall through a ceiling mm -hmm. and you might have you just lost your transport or your lander at that point. And for me, I just think they're very cool and interesting to study because it's molten rock that's managed to reach the surface of a planetary body flowed for a certain distance and then solidified. So it's just so cool to be able to look at them that what, well, at least what they look like after they've solidified and try to deconstruct the story from only what we can see and not always what, because we never get to see what it's like at the flow, unless you go to, um, if you're very lucky, you go to Hawaii or in some places in Iceland, you can see these flows active and then you can study them as they develop, which is useful. But most flows, especially on the moon, we never got to see them because most of them stopped erupting one billion years ago. So all we have is whatever's been preserved. So we want to be able, so it's so cool to looking at what we can see and try and deconstruct it and re and trying to create a story from that. So Gavin, you're very lucky that your, your PhD work requires you to often visit these beautiful sites and travel a lot. Uh, I wish I could do that as well. Well, I mean, I do go to conferences, but you know, <laughs> I study philosophy and I can't do much about studying abstract objects. I can do it over here sitting on my sofa. So you're very lucky. Uh, is there any location site that you, uh, you, when you, you really enjoyed and learned a lot, especially when it came to know more about the morphologies and uh, the surfaces of Mars or the moon? Yeah, um, well, so what for, for, that, for that question, um, it pretty much leads to the follow-up study after I did a, completed my work in Idaho. Uh, we ended up, it was last summer actually in August, we traveled to the central highlands in Iceland where we got to visit a lava field that erupted in the end of August, literally quite the end of August 2020, 2014. <laughs> and it, it was erupting for about seven months until the end of February. And it was interesting because one, it's currently 
it's the largest flood style uh, eruption that's happened in Iceland in the past couple of centuries. And uh, what I mean by flood style or flood basaltic volcanism is that usually what happens is a crack would open up on the ground and the lava will spew out and start to flood on the surface instead of creating giant cones and erupting, the, erupting from this cone, similar to like in Hawaii. But, so, but this lava field was unique because it erupted in a glacially active area. It also redirected a river system when it erupted, completely blocked it off, and then, had to, and then the river split and started to flow around it, created these temporary hot springs, which could put, potentially have created areas where microbes could have been able to survive and thrive. And it's also got morphologies and roughnesses that are similar to Martian lava flows that have been studied using imagery collected by the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. So I was actually really excited to get to go out there, not because, not just because to see the lava field, but it was also my first time getting to go to Iceland in general. Mm. And it's, there's a reason they do call that country the land of fire and ice. It's very <laughs> bizarre walking on the lava field. And you can still feel the heat coming out of it. That's why it's oh. still, it may have been five years since it erupted, but it was still, you could still feel the residual heat coming off of it. So it's still quite hot. And then in the distance, you just see a giant glacier that's just looming over it. Mm. So it's just very weird seeing something that's extremely hot next to something that's extremely cold and then co coexisting. I had no idea that that would be the kind of sensations you would, you would feel even after five years. That's mm -hmm. super cool. Quite a, quite a paradigm shift to have two completely opposite forces of nature side by side, which, uh, which again, the, the nickname for Iceland is so apt in that regard. So Gavin, in your experience, how large are these lava flows? Like, are we talking tens of kilometers large? You know, do they vary based on how much molten rock is spewing out of the Earth's surface? What, what kind of dimensions are we talking about? It, it definitely varies depending on the eruption in general. Uh, in volcanology, there's two types of eruptions. You either get an explosive eruption or an effusive eruption. I, the ones I look at are effusion, which just means there's not really much gas being released. It's mainly just lava being spewed out of a volcano cone, a cone or a crack in the ground. And explosive ones are, I guess, a lot of people are probably more familiar in North America to mount the eruption of St. Helens. Mm -hmm. That was an explosive eruption. The Iceland volcano that erupted in 2011-12 that disrupted mm -hmm. airlines around Europe and the North Atlantic, that was also explosive. And they're actually the most, most dangerous ones because one, they can decimate cities if it's big enough. Pompeii is the biggest example mm. for that. While the fusion ones, they can cause disruption, destruction to civilians and towns, but only if you're close by. Mm -hmm. And they can release a lot of fumes, but not a major amount, at least not the ones that erupt nowadays. Mm -hmm. I say size-wise, the one in Iceland is about it's about in the sh approximately tens of kilometers okay. uh, in size. But there have been ones in the past that they go to like the hundreds of kilometers in size. Wow. But what's very interesting though, is that if you compare them to the lava fields that you see on the moon and Mars, ours are extremely tiny. What we could consider a, maybe it's 10 kilometers squared lava field here. You can look up to maybe a thousand or even more kilometers squared on the moon and Mars. They cover vast areas up there. Mm -hmm. And part of that's just mainly might have to do is like what's actually happening and what was happening in case if we're talking about the moon, what's happening in the interior. 
So it, may, it might be a completely different process, mainly because it's a smaller body, the heat source is smaller, or there just might have been some forces that are happening in the moon that weren't happening in Earth and vice versa. So it, may, it was able to spew all this lava out. So there are, Jeff, there are big size differences, mm -hmm. but it mainly depends on how much magma is actually being forced up to the surface. Awesome. Very interesting. Yeah. Very so, interesting. So you had you had a couple of presentations this summer. Can you tell us more about those conferences and what you presented on? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So this year's probably been is gonna is probably the most conference heavy year I'm going to have, mainly because since I'm approaching the final year of my PhD. It's the time where you really need to start networking and meeting people to apply for postdocs or jobs in the future. So the first conference, I went to two in July. One was the Loon GradCon, which is a, it's a small conference where graduate students and postdocs present their research, anything to do with lunar science. To one, you get to meet other people in your field, and two, it's your first chance to network with professors that will be attending. The one after that was the NASA Exploration Science Forum, which happens every year. This one was virtual, unfortunately. But I also got, to, this is where I got to present my Iceland research. And I got to talk to a couple of professionals who got to visit my poster at the time to try and get ideas about how I could maybe move forward with the results that I have, get new ideas for new projects, or just a chance for me to practice presenting this work. So. Those were the main things I got to present at those conferences this month. I have a follow-up as well. Um, so given COVID-19, so you recently had a virtual conference as well, but I was thinking about the sites that you were previously visiting for to collect data and stuff. How has COVID-19 impacted your research in the, or what do you think may have to change in the coming months, for example? Are there some well, worries for you? Well, with, when COVID started, we, I already started to think that all the field work we had planned this summer was probably either going to get postponed to next year or maybe canceled indefinitely. Uh, unfortunately, because originally we were supposed to go back to Iceland in July to do some more follow-up work. And then I was also supposed to go to Labrador to look at an impact crater in August, September. But unfortunately, we had to push those uh, expeditions to the end of next summer so it's going to be interesting next year because i'm going to have to be finished submitting my thesis and then heading off to the field so it's going to be a very busy summer <laughs> next year but the writing and the remote sensing part of my research didn't really get affected that much since that can also all be done on my computer and in the lab and yeah. i was I managed to think ahead enough that I remotely connected my laptop to my lab computers. So I could still, as long as I had internet access, I could still connect to all the programs I needed. So COVID kind of, one subpart of the research COVID didn't really affect. It made, it made it a little bit frustrating if the internet connection was bad. So then processing takes even longer. But then it was also really frustrating that everything we had planned to build up papers that I'm currently writing or to submit new ones has to be postponed for a year because we can't currently uh, use air travel. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, if it's any solace, I, I assure you that you are perhaps not the only one whose plans have been folded as a result of the virus. Now, considering you're coming towards the end of the PhD, 
do you have an end goal in mind with your research? You know, I know you talk a lot about the lava flows and how they can influence, um, you know, uh, you know, planetary travel, um, you know, going to Mars, um, going back to the moon, et cetera, et cetera. What, what does this mean for the general public? What, what, can, what sort of message can you transpond onto them as to why this is important? Uh, that's actually a question I get asked quite a few times, mm. especially in outreach. Uh, so this is kind of the way I like to phrase it. With lava flows, one, if it was, the more we study about lava flows, if we particularly focus on the surface roughness on Earth, it's not as important mm -hmm. since it's easier for us to be able to see them and we know like, okay, that's very rough and treacherous, we're not going to go near it. Planetary science, they rely on it more because since we can only look at remote sensing data and if we're lucky images from the Apollo missions, we can't, we need to know exactly how hazardous or rough the surface is in areas or else missions can't go ahead in certain areas. On Earth, how I can, how I talk about my research to maybe the general public is the types of data, especially the remote sensing data that I'm using has a very interdisciplinary use that lava flows is just like the folk is like the focus of the data, but it's not limited to that. Like one of the remote sensing data, as I should have said this earlier, was um, I use synthetic aperture radar. Mm -hmm. So when everyone hears radar, we always think about when planes and boats use them to detect objects. That is Doppler radar. The synthetic aperture radar creates images from radar signals that strike surfaces and are reflected or scattered back to a receiver. So it kind of creates a pretty much just a, an image you can overlay on top of an optical or visible image. And you can sometimes see structures that you can't see with the naked eye, mm -hmm. such as some slopes will be a very bright because it's bouncing right off a steep cliff. Anything that's got a lot of giant boulders or raggedy material, vegetation, that will appear very bright because it's been able to scatter these signals. Or when you have flat surfaces such as roads, still water, it's going to become back very dark because again, the signal is bouncing back and there's not really much scattering going on. So, but that data is constantly used nowadays to monitoring ship movements in harbors, looking at deforestation. And because if you look at it yet annually, you'll be able to see areas that probably shrink. It can monitor agricultural growth and degradation, the expansion of the growth of deserts, which is becoming a huge mm. problem in some parts of the world. And you also use it just to monitor volcanic activities on Earth. They can be used to let you know, like what how much area did the lava flows actually cover? Are there areas that we think that might be safer for people to go to while if eruptions were to happen? And also, it allows us to monitor glaciers as well. So, radar synthetic aperture radar is really good at monitoring sea ice growth and receipt recession. So we're actually able to monitor glaciers in the north, in the, in the Arctic and in the Antarctic using this data set because sometimes we, if there's clouds, we can't see through clouds, but radar can go through clouds. So it's good all year round. It doesn't rely on light. So you can even do it 24-7 unlike a normal camera. So it, that's why I like to sell that to the public because even though lava flows may not particularly connect with them, <laughs> the radar aspect of it can. And that's why I really love using it in planetary science because not that it hasn't been used for the past couple decades, it still has some steps that need to be taken to properly understand the data. 
because there's only there's not many professionals that have a full-on focus on this type of radar in planetary science there are quite a few but not as many as i'd i would say as other data sets such as infrared uv uh, ultraviolet lights optical imagery and even ground penetrating radars probably more has a bigger field than synthetic aperture radar. Mm -hmm. No, wow. and I, I, you know, it, it is a lot, but I think it is very interesting how you draw the link between how we can utilize radar to monitor um, the shared burden of, of climate change that's currently undergoing on our planet. Now, can the average Joe, the average tourist visit these lava flows? Is this, is this something that's off limits to, to normal individuals? Or is it, is it reserved for particular ones? Hoping that the Hawaiian or Icelandic tourist boards sponsor me with this question. <laughs> well, the good thing about the one, the one, the craze of the moon in Idaho is a national monument. That's, that's part of the United States National Park Services. So they actually now they had to give us permission to go to some areas. So that's open to the public. We always constantly sell people. The one in Iceland actually is open to the public. You can't go in the winter because it since it's in the highlands and it's three hours off the main roads. Wow. You a close it off in the winter just because you, you you physically can't get there. You do, however, they do give you lots of warning. We had to rent or out. I will say this though, I was in charge of logistics that year because my supervisor was on maternity leave at the time, so she put me in charge. And I had to find the right vehicle to book to one, deal with rocky terrain, harsh conditions, and capable of driving through a river. Wow. So yeah, we had to drive through two rivers to get to our campsite. So I had to make sure that the clearance was, it was at least 200 centimeters above the ground. No, not 200 centimeters. That's a lie. About 200, 200 mil, it was about 200 millimeters off the ground. The vent was not so low that water could easily get in. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, as soon as the water gets into your exhaust or your vents in your car, floods and it's not good. No, no. So after dealing with that and having a very unpleasant experience with Enterprise, because they <laughs> promised me a vehicle that was big and they gave me one that was about two thirds its size. It's not acceptable. No, because they claim it was in the same class as vehicle, but it's only because it would cost the same, but necessarily its performance is the same. But anyway, it is, you need those types. You need to like pretty much get a big truck. You can drive there, go through rivers. There's a campsite. That's where we stayed. It's right at the base of a shield vault of a caldera. Wow. So a collapsed, an old collapsed volcano. I think the last eruption there was big one was 1878. Wow. And it's got a lake in the center, which is actually is beautiful. Around the area, if you dig, depending on the time of year, if you dig around some of the soil, you can find ice that's buried because it's still freezing cold in the ground, even in the middle of the summer. And what was also really cool about this location is, is one of the sites that America sent the Apollo astronauts to train before Apollo, all the Apollo missions began. Interesting. So I actually got to see some videos of um, Jack Schmidt training to be a geologist and well, being a geologist in the field training to be an astronaut. Pretty cool. So Gavin, thanks for sharing this entire new world for many of us at least. Uh, it's super fascinating. And I, ha I have a couple of tangential questions. Uh, <laughs> uh, so the first one is, 
given that you're so interested in volcanic flow, I was wondering if there's a movie recommendation that you might have for people who might be interested to to have some idea of what, what you're really interested in. Are we going with realistic or just just plain uh, whack? You, you can go <laughs> for both. You can give me two movies. One Ooh. off the charts. It's super cool, but makes no sense. <laughs> uh, I can't think of a movie that are entirely accurate. I know one movie that comes to the top of my head is Dante's Peak. Yes. Mm. Oh, yeah. That is supposed memories. Based, yeah, that is supposed to be based off the eruption of St. Helens. Mm. It's actually, I actually quite enjoyed the movie. I know it's available on Netflix. Oh, if I was to give another one. There's not really any, I know there's the movie Volcano. I've never seen it myself, but I think if you want something wacky, completely inaccurate, but probably it's just fun to watch because it's so dumb, I'd recommend that. <laughs> it's apparently, as far as I know, apparently it's like a volcano just appears in the middle of a city and then erupts. So it kind of just hurts my brain thinking about that. <laughs> but it could happen really, you don't know don't want to no, take no. a chance <laughs> and well it, those are the two movies i say i definitely my, would recommend my my other tangential sort of question uh is you uh when i first came to gradcast as a guest um uh, you and ariel had interviewed me and now i'm interviewing you so i kind of it's kind of cool for me as well i wanted to know uh, for how long have you been on Gradcast? And also, what have you enjoyed most being a host and producer? So it's been about approaching two and a half years now. So it's, and it's been a really good experience. I mean, from hosting, getting to talk to other students about research topics that are not in my field at all. So for me, it's like always learning something new. Even if I only take one thing away from an episode, it's still something I can add to my own almost like my own uh directory of information it's just i get to learn something that one maybe is very bizarre very unique very weird very complicated or just plain right ridiculous but it's something i got to learn outside of my field which i always seem to appreciate quite a bit and it's also given me more of a chance to talk about not even just my work but trying to communicate with other students and professionals in different fields in a not using simple language no um no jargon and trying to stick to lamest terms as much as possible which i think is very important and something mm. i think is a skill that's not being refined well in academia or even industry i'd say academia and industry it's a skill i think we need to develop more because there are still times where I'm sure we've all experienced it. If we go to some meetings or conferences that you get some speakers that are really good, you understood everything they're talking about, but then you get others that either are droning and you have no idea what they're talking about because they're talking in a language that only they can understand mm -hmm. or they're talking in a language that only people in their field would understand, which I think people need to know when to switch that on and when to switch that off. Yeah, so that's something I've really gotten to improve on ever since joining. I, th I think that's a very, a very good piece of advice for prospective academics or podcasters in the future. Now, Gavin, it looks like we're just about out of time. Just want to thank you very much for coming on yet again, and we will be working with you soon. Yeah, um, I guess just we wanted to know if you wanted to share your uh, social media information yes, uh, for all of us <laughs> to contact you. 
Yes, um, so I'm actually quite, I'm quite active on social media. Um, my Twitter handle is at Gavin on the moon. And that's also the name of my Wix website, Gavin on the moon, a PhD research blog. And I've also, I am on Instagram. I've recently started to get into, it's completely off my research, getting into cooking and baking. So I have got one account called the at La, the lava chef. Cool. Yes, I had to plug lava in. I had to think of something. <laughs> to so I thought oh. that's going to be perfect, and no one took it, so I immediately jumped to the opportunity. So I'd say, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so yeah, thanks for coming on our show, and this has been Gradcast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Yusuf, and my co-host was Liam Clifford. We've been speaking with uh, Gavin Tolomati, and this episode was produced by Ariel Frame. If you would like to be involved with this show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at gradcastradio. To listen to us, we are on the radio at CHRW 94.9 FM. You can also find all of us uh, on our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbee, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select podcasts have been uploaded to YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have an awesome night. <laughs> <laughs>